The Christian world is missing something that we need to rediscover, and that's what I'm going to address this morning. There's something here that we need to rediscover badly within the Christian story. I'm going to begin this morning by going back to a couple of things that I shared last week, primarily some teaching that I did, and I'm going to add a little bit to that. We're going to go back to this teaching on repentance. And again, I shared with you last week that I don't know how many times and how many apologies I need to make for how many times that I taught the teaching of repentance incorrectly. How many times I have stood and taught that it means to turn. That's what I'd always been taught, what I'd always believed, that you recognize that you're doing something wrong. To repent means to turn, and now you're doing something right. You've corrected it, and you're doing something right. Well, the depth of repentance is much different than that. And I want to go back through that for just a moment because it's one of those things that I discovered, as I've shared with you before, when I just allowed God to continue to teach me, that he opened the doors and I actually saw this for what it really was. So we need to all recognize that we all have an ancient past. That is the life of our grandparents and our great-grandparents, often that we did not know. People that we know shaped our lives, had an effect on our lives, but were gone before we were born, and those people we never met. But we recognize that those people had a very, very direct impact on the people of our past. These are the lives of our grandparents, our parents, those family friends that have been in our story for a long time. Those are the people that we do know. And we know that they had an opportunity to actually shape some things that I feel about me. Those folks have had a very direct impact on my recent past, the stuff that's happened over the last seven to ten years, stuff that we know are are part of our story. That part of our story has had a very direct impact on our current situation, the things that are going on right now, the interactions and the relationships. So most of the time, when I consider me, when I look at me and the things I believe about me, the good things or even the bad things, Most of those came out of all that history. We were shaped by the history of our parents, our grandparents, our family friends, their values, their morals, the way they handle problems, the way they handle challenges, the way they handle life. So much of what we do now, we do out of that history. Well, the word repent, when I really began to study it from my own, you know, instead of it meaning to turn, it actually means to change your mind. So when I look at that, there's two possibilities. My brother and I experienced the same history. The conclusions that he drew were very different than the conclusions that I did. Our lives in many ways are similar, but in many ways are very different, largely because we reacted to that history differently. But what's what's still the truth? It's still shaped by the history. Whether we liked it and were a part of it or didn't like it and rejected it, what I believe about me is still being affected by that history. And when I finally understood repentance and the depth of it, what God really wants us to do, to recognize that it means to change my mind. I can tell you that was a huge deal for me, to recognize that repentance meant to change my mind. And it didn't mean my brother had a mindset, I had a mindset, that's not a changed mind. Jay taught us this again a few months ago or a year ago or so, that what God really teaches in the terms of repentance is that he wants us to leave that history. What's the likelihood that that history could tell you the truth about you? What's the likelihood that that history could tell me the truth about me? 
The chances are zero. If John 14 is correct, when Jesus is about to go away, he says to his disciples, I'm going away, but I'm sending someone. I'm sending the Holy Spirit, and he will lead you into all truth. If I want to know the truth about me, if I want to know the truth about marriage, if I want to know the truth about relationships, if I want to know the truth about finance, if I want to know the truth, I'm not going to find it in books. I'm going to find it because I put myself before the Holy Spirit and let him teach me. He has to become the source of truth. So what God asks us to repent, he's not asking us to change our mind about the history. He's asking us to leave it all together, come across the page and find a whole new source of thought. And if we do it right, who will that source be? If we want to know the truth about us, then God has to become the source of that truth so that I only believe about me those things that God would say. And if God wouldn't say them, I shouldn't believe them. We talked about this extensively at the end of the service last week. You know, Kate stood here after I'd finished talking about repentance and what happens when we don't repent, that we cut ourselves off from the blessings of God when we don't repent. And Kate stood here because of what she had seen because of the prophecy that had been spoken over her and Ryan, that they held this sword of fire able by the power of God to cut away those things about us that are untrue. And many stood last week and said out loud those things that were untrue. Max came up and and shared with everyone that he believes about himself at times, that he's a disappointment to God. What needed to be done, Ryan did cut that away. So that we'll only believe about ourselves those things that God would say. And if God won't say it, do not believe it. Don't trust it. Don't accept it. Because most of us are carrying many, many things about ourselves that came out of history that God did not establish and God would not say. If we don't see ourselves the way God designed us, we'll miss many blessings. The other thing that needs to go in that bottom box where I have that word me for our lives to be drastically different is we need to put God in that box. Because most of the time, what we believe about God has been shaped by our history. Well, I want to show you this morning how we're supposed to understand God. Because the key to discovering what I mentioned earlier that we've lost is held in this reality. We badly misunderstand God. Man, if we ever get that squared away, if we ever understand what God's trying to tell us about himself, life will change forever. Most of us have developed an image of God, God the Father, by beginning with an earthly man or an earthly father. And what we do is we begin there because that's what we see, that's what we've tangibly experienced, and we reason up mentally, emotionally. We reason up from beginning with with an earthly man or an earthly father. We begin there and we reason up what we believe about God. But there is a terrible problem with that. Because men, earthly fathers are variable. I can make them happy. I can make them sad. I can upset them or I can see the joy on their face. If we begin with an earthly father recognizing a man that is variable and we reason up an understanding of God, then the first misconception that we will have of God is that God is also variable and that I can make him happy and I can make him upset. When he looks at me, he's wringing his hands saying, when will he ever get it right? When will he ever quit disappointing me? When will he finally figure this out? Well, I want to tell you that is absolutely 
not God's perception of you. God is not variable. We say it around here all the time. There's not a single thing you can do that will make God love you more. Nothing. There's not a single thing that you can do to make God love you less. Nothing that you can do. Why? Because his love for you is not based on you. His love for you is found in his heart. It's found in him. And it's unwavering. It's unchanging. You cannot alter how much God loves you. What would happen if we could just believe that one simple thing about God? God loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Not because of what I did yesterday. He loves me. Not because of the mistake I made yesterday. He loves me. Not because of the goodness that he sees in me. He loves me because it's found in him. But we will not get that if we start with a man, reason up an understanding of God. We will always have a misconception of who he is. What did God intend? He says it all the way through the scripture, especially in John 14. We want to know the truth about anything. We have to find it where? In the one who came to reveal to us all truth. So how are we supposed to know God? We begin with the Holy Spirit. And it's by the Holy Spirit that he reveals down the truth about God. Please don't believe anything about God that the Holy Spirit doesn't bear witness to you that it's true. Don't believe anything I say. Don't believe anything any preacher says. Only trust the Holy Spirit to tell you about God. Because he knows. He knows what we don't know. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll find it right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'll begin reading with verse 7. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. I love this passage. I could preach from it every week and not ever get tired. This passage holds so much in it. Paul records by the Holy Spirit to the church at Corinth, verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princesses of this world knew, For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, and here's the verse we hear often at funerals, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of men, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. We talk about this in terms of, well, we we can't quite understand eternity in heaven. We can't understand that. But I want you to notice the very next word in verse 10 is the word but, a conjunction that says God is going to say something against what he just said. Verse 10, but God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all the things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man save the spirit of a man that sent him? So what's the illustration? Who knows you better than you? If I want to know something, and I wish people would actually do this, instead of believing the stuff that they hear, If you want to know the truth about me, come ask me because nobody knows me like me. And I promise you, I will tell you the truth. Who knows you better than you know you? That's what, that's the illustration that Paul is using. For what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him. Even so, the things of God knows no man, but the spirit of God. Who knows God best? The spirit of God. No question. Who knows God best? The Spirit of God knows him. If I want to know God, who's going to have to tell me? Who's going to have to show me? Who's going to have to introduce me? It's the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. 
which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual. We are designed to know him. We're designed to be able to experience him, to have a great intimacy with him. And if we would ever get it, there would be some things in our life that would dynamically and drastically change. And we're going to read that in just a minute. So just as we learned last week from Hebrews 12, when I was talking about Esau, that he could not enter into all the blessing that he wanted because the scripture says in verse 17, he could find no place for repentance. He couldn't find those who would change their mind. And he was cut off from his blessing because there was no change of mind. He says, even though he sought it through tears. So we talked last week about the fact that because of a lack of repentance, he missed something. Well, I want to tell you this week, I want to talk to you about what we're supposed to have and the great difference that it would make if we would just accept it. So we talked last week about true loss that occurs when we refuse to repent. But I want us to talk this morning about going the other direction and just looking at the enormity of the blessing that we're supposed to experience. One verse I'll, in, I'll introduce with this, Romans 5, verse 11, if you want to turn there. This is what I think that, the, that most of us as Christians are missing. I think the reasons that we're missing are probably thousands upon thousands. Broken hearts, loneliness, frustration. I think the reasons, economics, financial problems, relationship problems. Again, I think there's a thousand reasons why we're missing it. But listen to what verse 11 says. It says, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And not only so, but we also joy in God. I don't know many people that I can say that that's true about. Many people that out of the relationship that they have with God, irrespective of circumstances or situations or problems, difficulties, whatever it happens to be, I don't know many people. When you experience them as a believer, that the thing that you pick up on immediately is that they have joy in their Savior, joy in God. It seems to be drastically missing. We're busy and we can say that we're happy, okay, but this explosion of joy, this, this true reality of having, do you have joy in God? Can you go down the highway smiling because of who you have a relationship with? Can you sit down in your home with your family and, and, and let the joy of God, the joy that we have because of the relationship, can they feel it? Can they experience it? Or has the world drug us down? We're just kind of at the place of surrender. I had a friend ask me the other day, just because of the difficult challenges, where do I go to quit? Just so tired. The weight of things, those weight of things have pulled on us so heavily, sometimes with such difficulty and some despair that there aren't many believers who are not caught up in it and have such a hard time saying and testifying of the reality that I have joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're absolutely intended to enjoy and find joy in this relationship with God. It was always intended. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 6. The Holy Spirit through Peter says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So you see that greatly rejoicing when there's such a heaviness that is on you. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise 
and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believe. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. I love that phrase, joy unspeakable and full of glory. How many of you know the song? Yeah, there's a few of us who've been around long enough to to remember it. I found his grace is all complete. He supplies every need. While I sit and learn at Jesus's feet, I am free, yes, free indeed. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Full of glory, full of glory. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, the half has never yet been told. Man, whoever wrote that song got it. I wish that was the song of our hearts. We sit as if we want to be untouched by the love of God. We sit as if the stuff doesn't matter. Well, I want to tell you it matters to God because he has every purpose and every intention that you enjoy the relationship that you have with him. That it wasn't designed to do anything else but to bring you joy. We've lost it. So I want to go back because the balance of Romans 5 The verses 1 through 11. 11 is the one that I've already read about having joy in God. The first 10 of those verses say, if these things are in place, you will have the joy of God. Now, anywhere along this list, if you don't have any one of these things, the joy won't be complete. You'll be missing something. Those verses 1 through 10 say, if you have these, you will have the joy of God. So my question for you this morning is as we go, Not only do you believe this, do you own it? When I read something, can you say, I have received that for myself to be true? I believe that with all my heart because what you believe about God again, whether it was formed by man or revealed by God, is fixing to determine whether this joy can be found in you or not because it's wrapped up in what we believe about God. I can tell you, I have great joy in my wife. I love her to death. We worked hard yesterday at our house. It was, we're getting ready for a dinner at our house tonight. And we worked hard yesterday. And every one of those things, great joy in just being together. Why? Because everything I discover about her brings that joy up. I experience something different about her. With everything I learn, the joy increases. If I had suspicion of her, doubted her, wondered about her, I promise you the joy would disappear. The joy is in my certainty of her, my faith in her, my confidence in her, my trust in her, my belief in her. If you're missing the joy, it's because there's something missing in our belief about God and what he intended. So we're going to look verse by verse for just a few minutes. I'll be quick about this. Paul is clear in these passages what it takes for the joy to be found in verse 11. We're going to begin with verse one. Therefore, being justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to that. Let that sink in. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaks volumes in one statement of the Holy Spirit and gives us the basis of our joy in God. I am justified by faith. I have standing before God as a son. It's the moment. I use the illustration often. There was a point when we took our children to a school, that one across the street or another one, on that very first day, and we filled out some papers, and we told them all that we knew about our kids that we felt like they could stand to know, and then we stopped. But we gave them the basic information, and upon that day, 
one day in one moment by the filling out of that paper, they now had standing in that school as a student. Yes, the journey was beginning. A few minutes earlier, they weren't a student. Now they are. They're justified. They have standing in that school. And I want to tell you when that, when that hits us as believers that I am a son of God. When I be- trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I became a child of God. What could give us more joy than to recognize that I am a child in my father's house and who my father is and how he loves me? I'm not a servant of God. You've heard me teach this before. This drives me nuts. When people teach that we have been saved to serve, it is absolutely untrue. And don't fall for it. We were not saved to serve God. We're saved to be sons and children of God. And we talk about this when I'm teaching this. Shorty made the comment, of all the hands he ever had, who would work the hardest? Who would serve the, the, the most? His son. When I work, Jay is absolutely side by side partners in this. Can stay with me longer. Work side by side with me because we serve out of the relationship. We were not saved to serve. We were saved to be children. And what's the difference? A servant will again, look at what the master has. Look at the house. Look at the land. Look at the cattle. Look at the wealth. Look at everything that the master has and the servant will never believe for a second that what the master has will ever be given to him except what I worked for that day. A son, on the other hand, will look at all that the father has and say and and automatically know by right of my birth, everything that the father has is already mine. We say it. We see it in the story of the prodigal son. The son that came home that had wasted everything. He arrives back and the father runs out to meet him. And the son's trying to apologize, trying to say, I'm sorry, trying to say, I've wasted all this. And the father won't hear it. He's not interested in the mistake. He's not interested in the error. My son is home. Kill the fatted calf, get the robe, get the shoes, get the ring, restore sonship. And the party's going on and the elder son comes home. Now, many of us can associate with that elder brother and say, well, I think he was right. He stayed there. He's done all this stuff. And this boy comes home, he's wasted all this and the parties for him. That elder son comes home and he won't go in. He just refuses. And the father comes out and says, what's wrong? And he says, My, the, the son that wasted all this come home and you threw him a party. And here I am. And listen to these words. For all of these years, I have served you. And you wouldn't even give me a goat to kill so that I could have it with my friends. And the father looks at him in dismay. And says, son, you have always been with me. Everything I have is yours. What's the difference here? Here's a son who was functioning as a son and came home and received what the father would do to restore him. And here's a son who was acting like a servant, hoping that if I get this right every day, following your rules, serving you diligently, that you'll give me a goat so that I can kill it and have with my friends. I want to tell you that's the difference between a son and a servant. Everything that the father had was his and he's still acting like a servant. What happens when we enter into sonship? When we know when we're justified before God that we become children of God, everything that the Father has has become ours. I want to tell you that that ought to be the beginning of joy rising up in us. That he's cut us off from nothing. Everything he has, all of his love, all of his peace, all of his goodness, all of his kindness, everything, all of the provision of God has been given unto us. I want to tell you that ought to be the beginning of joy. It was all made possible through Jesus Christ. Man, what we ought to gain in that day. Just the reality of being a son, being a child of God. Verse two, by whom also we have access by faith 
into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have peace with God from verse one through our Lord Jesus Christ, we also have access by that same faith into his grace wherein we stand. We stand in the, the grace that we are forgiven, not a little bit, totally forgiven. We stand in the grace that says we are loved, that we are restored, that we are transformed and that we are healed. Can you see how joy ought to be bubbling up out of that truth if we would just believe it? What God has done in this reality that has given us access by that same faith into all the abundance of the forgiveness of God, the love of God, what would we ever need? What could we ever say before God that would not be answered? Well, I'll tell you, most of us say, yeah, Randy, I believe you in truth. I believe it's written right here, but it just doesn't work that way for me. The size of my problems, the challenges, the difficulty of the things that I face every day are so demanding that it, on a scale, it just doesn't weigh the same. The heaviness is overwhelming me. The problems I'm having in relationships are overwhelming me. Well, I want to tell you, it's not because the scale is wrong. It's because it says we have to enter into that, have access by faith. Faith says, I believe it when I don't see it. Faith says, I trust it when I can't tell it. Faith says, I'm going to celebrate when there's nothing to celebrate. I'm going to worship when I don't feel like worshiping because my faith tells me in the things that I cannot see that he is greater than the things that I'm feeling. I want to tell you, if we can get it, the joy, you will not be able to stop it. We sang about it. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it and what? The world can't take it away. Verse three, four and five. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience. Patience experience and experience hope. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Because of that explosion, that exploding of rejoicing that goes on in us because of our hope in, in, in God, we can glory in tribulations because it works patience in us. And that patience, experience, and experience hope, and hope, no shame. Because the love of God, listen to this, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. What's he saying? Because of this reality that we have the love of God, we, we talk about it often around here. I have on my desk an empty cup, simple illustration, but a powerful one. Because we recognize, and we've taught wrong, and I say that carefully, we have taught wrong for a long time that the good news of the gospel was that Jesus came to save us. That is not the gospel message. That is not the good news because even though as dynamic as that is, that allows me to someday go to heaven, be prepared to go to heaven. Tremendous news in that. But I need some good news that tells me not only will someday I go to heaven, I need some good news that says what will sustain me for the rest of my life. I want good news about that. I use that cup because if that cup were dirty and you were needing a drink, we would know instinctively what to do. We wash the cup. The blood of Jesus came to clean the cup, to deal with the sin in our life. But if I were to hand you and, and try to quench your thirst with an empty cup, how successful would I be? Because that cup now made clean by the blood of Jesus was designed because it's now clean to hold the presence of God in it. So that when that cup begins to run over, the people around us begin to experience the overflow. They get God and not me. 
Because the love of God now flowing out of me will be shed abroad across everyone and they'll be able to feel the love of God as it comes from me, not originating in me. I'm a vessel, an earthen vessel who gets to hold the excellency of that which is placed in me, that the glory would be of him and not of me. What's he saying? You want that joy? You'll never find it if the cup's never overflowing because we were designed to overflow. I want to tell you, we will never even experience this joy if we don't let ourselves love one another because our joy was so wrapped up in it. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave because the manifestation of love will also always be to give beyond ourselves. Verse six, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a remarkable reality of, of what has occurred. My being a sinner had so thoroughly separated me from the intimacy with God and in the weakness that that created, he died for me. It was in that state, he died for me. We shared this in Sunday school this morning. We have taught for a long time that being saved is one of the easiest things we can do. How strange that must sound for God. Yes, it was easy in the method, but what we have so largely missed is that becoming a Christian is the hardest thing we could possibly ever do because it required that I die so that he could live. Because it cannot be my righteousness. It has to be his righteousness given to me. It has to be his healing. It has to be his salvation. I have to die unless a seed is planted in the earth and dies, there can be no life. Seven and eight, and scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. By his love, he died for us. I don't know how to say anything that would make you more joyful. I don't know how to create a list that would cause us to have more joy. I'm a child of God, paid for by the blood of Jesus, given access into the realities of the things of God, by faith having access to things that I could never otherwise touch. He loves us and he died for us. Verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, the cup is now clean, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That wrath means persecution. It means that we won't face that tribulation because of what has happened here in us, that we have an opportunity in this life, in this moment, right now, to avoid and escape what others have to face simply because we have an understanding. It doesn't mean that hard things are going to come. He says up there earlier where we will have tribulation, but we won't experience the wrath of God. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I not only was saved, but I am filled with the presence of God. The cup has no responsibility to produce anything except to stay under the flow so that the Holy Spirit can fill me regularly, routinely, And even though there's holes in my cup, I still sin. That cup runs over every day. And what you're supposed to get in here from me is the overflow. Every time I speak, you're supposed to be receiving the overflow out of the cup. And then he ends with the verse where we started. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So the question, this is all that remains. Do you have that joy? If not, what part of this are you missing? What part do you not believe? Do you not believe that we're justified and that we're sons and children of God? Are we stumbling there? Are we stumbling over the fact that we have access to God by faith and that everything he has is ours? 
Are we stumbling there? Do we see ourselves as servants instead of sons? Do we not recognize that the great provision of God in that while we were sinners, then we can rejoice in the fact that while we were yet sinners, he died for us? Where are we missing it? He's told us, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. What could come against me? What difficulty could I face that is greater or more significant than what God has provided? I mean, he gave us a wonderful list. It says, with these things, you'll have joy in me. If that joy is not there, and I tell you what, I, I only know one testimony, it's mine, but I have lived the sad, heavy life. I've lived the life weighing everything that people would say about me or good or bad, trying to find acknowledgement about what that really meant. Trusting the opinions of people, trusting the, the promises of men and women. And I've lived that heavy life. And I want to tell you, I, have, I don't want it anymore. I want to live in the joy of the Lord. I want my life every day. If you greet me, there's days when this isn't going to happen, but I want you to, when you greet me, I want you to experience the joy of God. I want the hug that I give you. I want it to be just laced with the joy of God. When I answer you, when you say, how am I, am I doing? And the answer comes out outstanding or excellent or tremendous, whatever. I want you to know that those words are coming out because I experienced the joy of God. I know there are difficulties and there's struggle. He says there's tribulations, but even in those, recognizing that those things work patience in us, they, they, they build us and the time's necessary. But I love to encounter Christian people. Yeah, they may be in the difficult time of their life and, and a difficult moment that they're walking through. But man, the minute that they open their mouth, they recognize what you're receiving is the joy of the Lord. I don't want to single anybody out. If you want to experience that, just talk to Landon for a minute because Landon has the joy of the Lord. He's a little guy and not every day easy, but he knows something. You watch him walk in. He'll shake you by the hand. He'll stand here as we're singing. He's got the joy of the Lord that he just wears it. Landon, I don't know where you got it. I don't know where all it comes from, but I admire it in you. And I just challenge you to always let the joy of the Lord be seen because you do such a remarkable job already. Just let the joy of the Lord just keep coming from you because it is that joy that will change the world. The world's looking for it everywhere. And I'm just so grateful that I get to see it in you. Every time I see you, I experience the joy of the Lord. My heart rises when I see you because you have it. Where do we go to get it? We go to simple faith. He said, if you come to me like a child and you'll find what you're missing, the complexities will fall away and you'll have the joy of the Lord.